It's fair to say that all of us want to have a life that is beautiful. It's why so much money is spent on cosmetics by so many people. It's why calling someone ugly is so offensive. And let me say that is offensive. It's why we hide the horrible character traits in us from other people and we get so ashamed when we're exposed as hypocrites or frauds. We want to have lives that are beautiful, whether that's external physical beauty or the beauty of an inner character or more likely both. And so the question is, What is true beauty and how do we achieve that true beauty? Well, that's what we're going to answer this morning as we come to Matthew's Gospel. And I I want to say that we're going to be looking at various passages in Matthew's Gospel. This Gospel account, this account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, ends with Jesus commanding us, the church, to go and make disciples of all nations. We call it the Great Commission. It's the reason why God has left us here on earth, the reason why he doesn't save us and take us straight to heaven. He wants us to live on this earth as disciples, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who make disciples of all nations. Now, the question that's so often asked is, how do we do that? Is there a manual on discipleship that we can refer to? And there are many books about this, but there is a manual that God has given to us. And the manual is called Matthew's Gospel. This account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is what I would term a discipleship manual. In it, there are five big sermons or discourses that Jesus gives to his disciples, where he teaches his disciples what it means to be disciples. And then interspersed between that are narrative accounts of the life of Jesus, where we see Jesus modeling what it looks like to be a disciple. And so in Matthew's gospel, what we have is the commands of Jesus. And in his life, we see how those commands are lived out. And then when we come right to the end of it, Jesus says, now, what you've heard taught and what you've seen modeled, you go and do. You see, there is a link between the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel and everything else that happens in his Gospel account. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you something of that link to show how all that Jesus commands us to do in the Great Commission is in fact what he taught and modelled for us in his life on earth as Matthew records it, to show Jesus' authority, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' teaching in action, his authority, baptism, and teaching in action, and then to show the beauty of that and how, as we follow Jesus in discipleship, 
so our lives will display the same beauty. They will display his beauty. So let's look at the first of those, Jesus' authority. The Great Commission begins with Jesus speaking about his authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. That authority is an authority to forgive sins, to reveal God the Father to whoever he chooses, and to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. Now, Matthew begins his gospel by showing this authority. There in Matthew chapter 1, we read that Jesus is son of David, son of Abraham. Now, for Matthew's Jewish readers, that was so important because the Messiah, the one who God had promised to send as the savior of his people, had to come from the line of Abraham and David. And so what Matthew has shown right from the very outset is how Jesus, the baby who was born in Bethlehem, grew up into manhood, is the long-promised Messiah. As the son of Abraham, he fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham, that through him, through Abraham, God would bless all the nations. And as son of David, he fulfills the promise that God made to David that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne and rule over his kingdom forever. Right at the outset of this gospel, Matthew shows us Jesus is the Messiah. And that through him, not just Israel, but the nations would be blessed. And through him, not just Israel, but the nations would come under his rule. So here is the authority of Jesus revealed for us in these opening chapters. He's God's king, the true David, who brings the nations into the blessing of becoming worshippers of the true and only God. Now, maybe you get all of that and then you begin to read on in Matthew's gospel. You come into chapter 2 and you look at this baby being born and you begin to wonder, is he truly the one with all authority? Here's this baby, he's born into a poor family with no royal status at all at a time of Roman occupation. And he's, when he's born, he lives nine-tenths of his life in obscurity in a despised town called Nazareth. His life is nearly wiped out before he even gets to the age of two. And you wonder if this baby could really be the Messiah, the true king who brings the nations to worship him. I mean, it doesn't look very promising. Or does it? You see, Matthew shows us that even before Jesus in his humanity as a man, even before Jesus could speak, he brought the nations to worship him. That's what we see with the narrative of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. These are men who come from the east. They are Gentiles, non-Jews. 
and they represent for us the nations. And they are supernaturally brought to Jesus. And what do we find them doing when they get before Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 11, we read, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. We need to stop and ask, what kind of baby causes grown men to make a perilous journey traveling many miles just to go and visit him? I mean, I know lots of babies that have been born and I probably wouldn't make that kind of journey to go and see them. So what kind of baby causes grown men to do that? What kind of baby brings grown men to their knees in worship and adoration? Well, it's the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who rules over the nations. He is the one who is bringing them into submission and bringing them to worship him. And it doesn't stop there with these wise men. When Jesus begins his brief three-year ministry on earth, we find him calling his first disciples. Look with me at chapter 4 and verses 18 through 20. Chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here is the authority of Jesus. He calls people to leave their work and to follow him. And they do. They give up a lucrative career in fishing in order to follow Jesus because he calls them. That is the authority of Jesus. And then what you discover in the end of chapter 4 is that he's calling the crowds and they also come in order to follow him. It continues in chapter 8 with a a centurion, a Gentile. And here is this man and he's placing his trust in Jesus. All through Matthew's gospel, we are seeing this truth that Jesus has authority. When he stands in Matthew chapter 28 and says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, he is not joking. He does have all authority. And because of that, we are to go to the nations and make disciples of all, of all those nations. When we go to all the world and we call people to leave their old life of sin and follow Jesus, it's what it means to do evangelism, to call people to leave their life of sin Follow Jesus to repent, to turn from sin, turn to Christ. When we go to 
the nations and tell them to do that. Behind that call is the authority of Jesus who brings wise men from the east to fall on their knees to worship him and fishermen to give up their careers to follow him and serve him. Roman centurions to trust him and crowds to follow him. Here's the point for us this morning. The growth of the kingdom isn't dependent upon our clever arguments or our powers of persuasion or even our ability to communicate, but it is dependent upon Jesus the King. We are to go with the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We are to call people to repentance. We are to use persuasive arguments. We are to seek to be articulate. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who is supernaturally at work in us, through us, to build his kingdom by his own authority. So that's Jesus' authority. Second thing that I want us to see is Jesus' baptism. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus instructs us, the church, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Quite simply, Jesus expects that his disciples will be baptized and he expects the church to baptize them. And Jesus models that for us in Matthew chapter 3. There we read about the baptism of Jesus. Uh, look with me at chapter three, thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Have you ever wondered why Jesus got baptized? You see, Matthew tells us that John's baptism was a baptism for the repentance of sins. You can read that in verses 5 through 6, verse 11. But as God come in human flesh, Jesus was sinless. So why did he need to get baptized? Even John is baffled and he tries to stop Jesus, to prevent him. But Jesus insists upon it. What's going on here? Well, Jesus has come on a mission to save sinful humanity. And here in, in his baptism, he's identifying with them. Just think about this. He could, Jesus could have stood with John and he could have stood next to John and said, John's right. You need to repent. In fact, he could have said to John, John, stand aside. Let me take over right now. I'm going to call you out on your sin. I, I can... I have, I, I'm able to look into your hearts 
I know the sin that resides there, and I'm going to call you out on your sin, and I'm going to call you to repentance, including you, John. Jesus had every right to do that as the sinless son of God, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes down into the water with the crowds, making himself one with them, one with us in this process of salvation that he would secure for us. Here's the point for us this morning. In calling people to follow Jesus, we are not calling them to religion. We're not calling them to church and all that church does. It's structures, programs, and traditions. We are calling them to find salvation from sin in a Savior who loves us enough to identify himself with us in our sin, truly taking our sin on himself and securing our salvation by dying for us on the cross satisfying the righteous wrath of God that stood against us so that we could be forgiven by God and made right with God. What a wonderful privilege we have to call people into this salvation, to tell the nations that they can be put right with God through Jesus Christ, his son, and receive everlasting life. That is is much better news than any other message that you and I will hear anywhere. It's much better news than hearing that a cure has been found for a physically life-threatening illness. You see, this gospel message is a message that holds true for an eternal life of joy in the presence of God. Through his identification with sinners and his death on the cross, Jesus has authority to forgive sins, to reveal the Father to us, and to give us eternal life in his presence forever. So that's Jesus' authority, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' teaching. In the Great Commission... Jesus tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, Matthew shows Jesus doing this. And in showing Jesus doing it, he shows us how to do it. We have to be called to preach. But you know what? Let me let you into a secret. It's quite simple in one sense. All you need to do, state the truth, illustrate it and apply it. Now, obviously, there's a lot more work involved in all of that. But that's what we see Jesus doing. And actually, any one of us can do that. We can sit down with people, open the Bible, state the truth, illustrate it and then apply it to their lives. And that's what Jesus does here. He's modeling it for us. So chapter four ends with Jesus calling his disciples and this great crowd follow him. And then chapter five begins with Jesus teaching these followers. They've been called to him and now he teaches these disciples. And his teaching here in chapter five is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 
Jesus clearly never read any of the uh, sermon preparation books that are kicking around at the moment because they say, make one point, keep it short. Jesus' sermon here makes lots of points and it's long. But look at the reaction of the crowds in chapter 7 as he brings his sermon to a conclusion. Look at how the crowds react in chapter 7, verse 28, 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, here again we see the authority of Jesus at work in his teaching. An authority that became evident as the crowd evident to the crowds as they compared Jesus to the scribes, to their teachers of the day. You see, the scribes taught the people by quoting what other human rabbis had spoken in the past. So they just quoted rabbinic traditions, which, as we'll see in a moment, were utterly flawed. So they might have said something like this. You know, when it comes to divorce, Rabbi Jacob says that it's okay to divorce your wife if she burns her dinner. That's true. It's not what we're meant to do, by the way. But that was a true teaching of the day. Or when it comes to murder, Rabbi Benjamin says that it's only the physical act of murder that is sin. It's okay to hate someone. And so on. But notice in chapter 5 how Jesus teaches the people. Just look at verse 21 with me. Chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you. In other words, you've heard what the scribes have said. You've heard what the rabbis in previous generations have said. But I, Jesus, say to you. Jesus is cutting across the traditional rabbinic teaching with his own teaching. And you see it through the rest of chapter 5 in his teaching on adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies. On all of these subjects, Jesus is speaking on his own authority. He's putting himself above rabbinic tradition. And we might ask, what right does he have to do that? Well, he shows us in verses 17 through 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus says he's coming to fulfill the law, one of the things that he means is that he's giving God's authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. For centuries, the rabbis had sought to understand what the Old Testament scriptures meant, and we should give them great credit for that. They were men of the book. They wanted to know what God meant. We could learn a lesson from them. But they came up with their ideas, and along with it, further laws to ensure that they kept God's law and that the people kept God's law. 
But when Jesus teaches the people, he's not doing away with God's law as if he was coming with a new law of his own. Instead, he is clarifying what God originally intended the law to mean. He's giving, as it were, God's final commentary on what was required by God in the Old Testament. He's showing the principle behind it and how he will then fulfill it. So the rabbis had taught that only the physical act of murder or adultery caused a person to be guilty of sin. But Jesus shows that actually it's the intentions of the heart that are as important as the physical act. God not only intended the people to avoid the physical act, but to have a heart that was free from hate and free from impurity. Now, we would never have known that or understood it unless Jesus had come and taught it 2,000 years ago. He comes on earth and he gives fresh light on how to understand the Old Testament law of God. And he gives this fresh light without consulting with anybody else. He didn't sit down with his closest disciples and say, what are we going to teach on this? He does it without any reference to any other human being. Why can he do this? Because of who he is. You see, as the eternal God, he is the one who gave the law in the first place. All that was spoken by Moses and the prophets was given to them by Christ. He was the one who was speaking through them when it was originally given. And now with that same divine authority, he's able to declare what the original intent of the law meant and how it would be worked out in the lives of new covenant believers. Now all of this has powerful implications for us. And I want to finish up with just two implications. First, it means that we need to be careful to teach what Jesus taught, which of course is what he commands us to do in the Great Commission. We're not asked to teach our ideas on religion. We're not asked to teach the traditions of the church or the philosophies of the age. Christ commands us to teach his words. Open up the Bible, state, illustrate, apply. And when we do that, those words come with an authority unlike any other teaching in the world. As we teach Christ's words so the Spirit of God takes hold of those words and works in the lives of people to change them, to save them from sin, to convert them, to make them more like Jesus, to cause them to become disciples of Jesus. As God's people, we need to see that this book that we have is the authoritative word of Christ. And we need to have confidence in Christ to do his authoritative work through this word. And we need to go in that confidence and teach what Jesus taught and teach obedience to all that he commanded. That's the first implication. We need to be careful to teach what Jesus taught. But there's a second implication that goes back to where we started. 
In all of these commands, what we see is the beauty of Christ. All through Matthew's gospel, we read, Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken in the Old Testament scriptures. Everything that the Old Testament required, including the original intent that Jesus reveals in his teaching, he fulfills perfectly through his obedience to the law of God. What that means is that what he teaches about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies is all that he is. Let me give you an example from chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not once in Jesus' earthly ministry did he ever lust after another woman. He acted with perfect purity towards all the women in his life. Instead of lust, what resided in his heart was love for his true bride, the church. A love that caused him to offer up his life to death on a cross in order to secure her salvation. A love that causes him to be patient with us as he works in us to transform us to become his perfect bride. Just think for a moment about how awful it is for a woman to be married to a man with a heart that lusts after other women. She never knows if she is the object of his love or if there's another woman taking her place in the heart of her husband. She never knows if his advances towards her are just to satisfy some kind of lustful intent or because he wants to serve her because he truly loves her. For we who are the church, the bride of Christ, we never have to worry about that because the one who commands purity in the heart of his people is the one who loves his church, the bride, with a pure heart, a pure love that comes from his heart. And to be his disciples means to follow him and to love our spices with a pure, heart, pure love from the heart and to love the church, his bride, with a pure heart as well. We'll take chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. When we get something wrong, the last thing we want is to experience the anger of someone. We want someone to come, put their arm around us and assure us that they're actually going to sort it all out. Angry people are not nice people. Uh, We are not naturally, I am not naturally attracted to angry people. We run from those kind of people. What is Jesus like? 
Well, he's like what he commands in these verses. He shows us how sinful it is to be angry with someone without a cause, sinful anger. How sinful it is to insult them, to call them foolish. Why does he show us that to be sin? Because he's not like that. He is patient with us. And he looks for ways of reconciliation, even putting right our wrong at the expense of his own life. And to be his disciples means to follow him and to show patience with people and seek reconciliation, even if it costs us. Now, here is the encouragement for us this morning. What the Lord Jesus Christ commands, he gives And so this teaching of Jesus isn't do as I say or even do as I do, but it's this is what I am doing in you. You see, Christ is at work in us, in his people, to form his image in us so that the beauty we see in Christ will be seen in us. And it's in that way that we witness. That's what Jesus shows us in chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you will be, but you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you will be, but you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what all this is about that we've been looking at this morning. It's about seeing the beauty of Christ in his word. And then following him in that lifestyle by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that the world, the people in Ride, the people on the Isle of Wight, your neighbours, your friends, your unbelieving family the people you work with, the people you study with, so that they will see the beauty of Christ in you and give glory to God. Let me pray for that to be a reality with you. Father, we thank you so much for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who has given his life for us in order that we might be put right with you, but in order as well that we might be changed and made more like your, more like your son. And so we want to pray, Father, I want to pray for myself, for Steve, for this church, for Grace Church, that Lord, you will be at work in our lives, that as we behold the beauty of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be transformed into that same image that his beauty might be seen in us by the power of your spirit so that the people around us will glorify you. We ask all of this in and through our Saviour's worthy and precious name. Amen.